Welcome to the Celebration Sessions podcast with me, Connor Clear. The Celebration Sessions is a podcast unpacking life, loss and love. As a celebrant, I want to learn more about how we celebrate, how we fall in love, how we mark the important occasions and how we can better talk about the inevitable loss we'll meet along the way. This is my look at the beauty of it all. And really, it's a reminder of how important it is now more than ever to celebrate. So thanks for joining me on the Celebration Sessions podcast. Hello and welcome along as always. Thanks for hitting play or download on the Celebration Sessions podcast. Lovely to have you with me once again. We're diving straight into this episode. Um, This episode comes under the heading of loss, as in... It relates to what happens after we're gone. But I think it's so much bigger than that. The conversation that we're going to have has profound ramifications on how we'll be remembered, who will write our story, and what will big tech companies be able to do with our digital information, so our data and images, when we're not around to have a say anymore. We share so much of ourselves with the digital world, so whether that's publicly on social media or privately in messages and emails or Google Maps and Google searches. And I've wanted to include this topic in this series as it's something that I'm not convinced we're really truly talking about. In Ireland, at least, the conversation is, I think, happening elsewhere. And it is the idea of your digital remains. So what happens your digital footprint after you die? So it is a conversation, as I said, that is happening all around the world. Uh, But I'm delighted uh, to be joined by one of the leading voices on this topic, psychologist and author, author of many books, in fact, but specifically All the Ghosts in the Machine, Elaine Casket. Elaine, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on your awesome podcast. Oh, listen, it is my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you agreed to join me. Um, paint me a little picture of, of where you're joining us from today. I am, despite my accent, in London, where I've lived for 20 plus years. Uh, so originally I'm from the United States, um, right. but I have lived most of my adult life here. So nice, whenever right. I'm looking into this subject, I... I in any subject, I suppose, I kind of bring a joint US-UK kind of perspective to it. But this, of course, is an issue that's massively, by definition, global. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the World Wide Web. It's a worldwide issue. So uh, wherever you're listening from, it's an issue where you are. So So I came across your work when I heard you speak at the Good Grief Festival on this topic. It was online last year. and, And as you spoke... The penny slowly dropped for me. Now, we're going to get into a conversation that for so many of us, I believe, we've given no thought to whatsoever. It's the idea of what happens, your data, your digital remains once you've passed on. Now, it is a massive topic, but I think let's try, try and start at the start. So what exactly, if if we can just break this down, what exactly are we talking about in terms of defining your digital remains once you've passed. This is one of the things that I think catches people up because there are a lot of people, perhaps some of you listening, that really aren't about social media that much. And they kind of think, well, if I'm not on Facebook or Twitter, if I don't post a lot on Instagram or whatever other platform, then there's nothing really there to be tidied up or anything that I need Mm. to think about 
Um, and even if they, and they can't really see what relevance or what importance or what significance that social media data would have after they die. I think that people don't think about all the other aspects of what is probably digital footprint now is too small a word to describe what's going on because so much of our activity is logged and stored and captured, whether we deliberately put it out there or not. So there's a lot of ambient (laughs) surveillance and information logging that's happening. Your phone tracks your location, your smartwatch tracks your heart rate. With kids even now, we've got infant wearables where infants wear socks to track their pulse oximetry readings while they're sleeping. And Google's got patents for smart cribs. And so it starts really early. It continues throughout your life and it consists of everything. And one of the most important things to remember about it is that our data, whether we are living or whether we're no longer here, is connected to the data of so many other people. So if you leave behind stuff on your email, for example, it's not just your information, it's connected to the information of everybody you've always corresponded with. So if somebody is trying to handle or get into or get hold of that information after you're gone, they're also accessing the information of a whole lot of living persons. And so the information of deceased people and access to it is all tied up with the issue of the privacy of living persons. And then, of course, not being able to access the information of somebody left behind is a whole nother set of issues, whether that's sentimental stuff like on sites like Facebook or photographs in the cloud, or whether it's practical information that people might really, really need to get hold of that you assume they ought to be able to get hold of because they're your next of kin or your wife, your child or whatever. And then I think there's people all over the world getting nasty surprises when they go to the Apple store with a phone and a death certificate or when they call up you know, Facebook or something expecting one thing yes. and getting a flat, no, we can't help yeah. you with that. Because so, it's not that simple. I mean, you don't It's just, not that simple. Yeah. So, so, okay, well, just remind ourselves of that. Like, obviously, when you sign up to the terms and conditions, you know, a loved one doesn't get to just rock into a shop with your phone to unlock it. You know, that's that's not the thing. Um, l- let's take a step back to then, okay, to, to, to being alive. You know, who owns all of our images and, and data while, while you're alive if, if we don't own them ourselves? Well, the there's a phrase that a good friend of mine and a colleague at Stanford, uh, the Privacy Research Center there at Stanford, uh, used with me that I think is really good shorthand to remember this. And he said, access is nine-tenths of the law. It used to be possession is nine-tenths of the law, and now with digital stuff, it's access is nine-tenths of the law. So it's like who owns it is kind of a secondary consideration to who can get at it. (laughs) And there was a study being done recently, a sort of survey being done here in the UK at Queen Mary. Uh, They looked at the terms and conditions of all of these different platforms and said, well, how many of these organizations even have rules spelled out in their T's and C's about what happens to the data when people die and who can access it, who can have it. And a large number of them just didn't have anything. So a lot of these services and apps, they aren't being designed with the end in mind. So then basically they can do whatever they want with the data. But in most things like this, for security reasons, while you're alive, for good security reasons, 
it's a one account, one user situation. So okay, yeah, yeah, d- yeah. whatever happens in, in terms of the answer to the question, who owns that photograph or who owns that correspondence, what's certain is you don't own that account. Right. You're, you're sort right. of leasing that okay. account. Yeah. And do you own the digital music that you download? No, you, you own it. You have bought a license to listen to it while you're alive. Do you own the contents of your Kindle library or your stuff on Apple TV or iMovies or whatever? No, you've bought yourself, you've rented yourself permission to listen to it, but you can't bequeath in a will, even if you could do digital sort of stuff in the UK, which we can't really yet, you can't pass on something that isn't yours to begin with. And accounts definitely fall into that category. And I would imagine that people get a land if they think a loved one has written that in their will, you know, when the day finally comes, you know, to find out that that's not a thing. Like you said, all these digital assets are being effectively least, you know? Absolutely. And I think people who help people out with wills and estate stuff are getting skilled up in these kinds of things. But I think it varies a lot. You can get people who are really knowledgeable about the state of play and people who aren't. Mm. But the problem with that is, is that the state of play changes and shifts all the time and it's really slippery. So even a practitioner who's really knowledgeable might not really be able to make you too many assurances about whether wishes that you put down, whether that's in a will or whether that's in some, a letter attached to the will or whatever, it's kind of up in the air about whether that will actually happen. So at the end, end of the day, the more you can translate the important stuff that you want people to have in a format that you can control locally, rather than trusting that some platform is going to do the right thing or do the expected thing, the better off you'll be. So I think people spend a lot of energy trying to make provisions. People who do think about it might spend a lot of energy trying to sort it all out on the platform. But at the end of the day, platforms could do whatever they want and they can change it at any time. Yeah, And you could use that time to pick the 100 out of the 6,000 photographs that you have and put it in a nice book to be able to literally hand to somebody. I love that. Uh, Because that's what your grandchildren will see, not what you post on Instagram today. There's no means by which they can necessarily access that. Uh, And something physical and tangible will will have a longer lifespan as well. Um, Now, as you mentioned, you mentioned provisions there. Even if we look at social media, for example, if we look at the different platforms, um, because obviously we can choose any avenue to go here. It's it's such a vast, vast area. But if we look at least just through the lens of social media for a moment, are there things that these companies are doing at least to facilitate the situation? Google was the first to tackle this. It's not social media per se. It's a different sort of platform. But obviously Google's got its fingers in lots of pies and there's Google Drive and there's Google Photos, which used to be Picasa and Google, you know, the mail and all the stuff. So Google Inactive Account Manager was the first real move in this direction where you could stipulate an inactive account manager and they had a period of time after which if you were inactive, they assumed you were dead. (laughs) And that time has changed over time. Um, And then it would be released to selective bits that you could tick. I want this person to be able to manage this, this, this Uh, would go into action at that point, go into force at that point. 
Then very close on the heels was Facebook. They used to have a delete upon death policy where if Facebook learned or got proof of the death of an account holder, it would be delete the account. Okay. And then there was a big tragedy in the United States, a university uh, shooting, the Virginia Tech massacre. And people approached Facebook and said, these are sites of memorialization. Please don't delete these. These are really important. And ever since then, Facebook has moved ever more towards a memorialization by default kind of position. But then over the years, started giving users more control over what happens to their data. And now if you go into your settings, the main settings thing, if you have a Facebook account, you'll see about four or five items down, legacy contact or memorialization settings where there's a few broad brush options you can nominate a legacy contact who has to be somebody on Facebook. There's no way to pass in that torch on because there's no legacy contact of the legacy contact mechanism yet. So it's kind of like, while that legacy contact is still alive, manage it for you. Um, Archive, allow this person to download an archive or tick a box that says, I would like my account deleted upon my death. And so those options are there. They aren't necessarily legally binding in the UK because... Uh, in the US, they are. In the UK, they're not. So you can kind of have a sense of control by doing that. But if somebody wanted to challenge it in court, like your next of kin sort of saying, well, why is this person managing my son or daughter or whatever's account? That could be challenged. It just right, hasn't been tested right, yet. Right. And then Facebook, which of course owns Instagram. Instagram's got a form of memorialization. There's a form on the uh, site that you can fill out to request memorialization of an account. And now Twitter has talked about doing it, but hasn't quite got its act together yet. Okay. Um, okay. So, so it's all kind of moving towards memorialization, which can be something that a lot of people experience as important. And that is important. As a psychologist, That's that, that's I understand that these digital remains can be incredibly meaningful to people. Yeah. But yes. the yeah. amount of power and control over that data that companies then maintain and the ways that that data can be utilized and monetized to gain insights about living users is a big problem Mm. uh, in my mind. And they wouldn't be holding on to it and memorializing things by default if this data were not meaningful and useful for them. Uh, I mean, exactly, exactly. Because they just yeah. don't do that. They don't yeah. play that. They exactly, don't play, yeah. you know, humanitarian, yeah. like, let us be nice to you for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> and how much it's can we trust that. these people? I mean, what can not they... Not very much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, 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 really, what can they benefit from a deceased person's information? This is something that a lot of people might not understand because I think it's sometimes hard for the average person to understand just all the parts of the information economy and how data is used and traded and how insights can be mined from data. We hear the phrase big data all the time without really understanding what that means. And what big data is, if you think about it, is this great big, huge, um, unimaginably by definition, huge bank of data that is stuffed full with all the data points from everything that's captured about you that you can that it can muster. And the point of big data and algorithms in big data is it's looking for correlations that are just a human mind or just regular per- couldn't possibly predict. You okay. know, it's looking for connections to things that they might be able to then deploy 
to sell us stuff better or to uh, kind of predict our behavior in ways that's going to enable them to get money out of us. Uh, the sock, for example, that I mentioned that some parents put on their infants to make sure that their you know, oxygen blood levels seem fine or whatever. Yeah, yeah, really yeah, yeah. expensive device. You think, oh, wow, that's where they're getting their money, that really expensive device. Yeah. But actually, they're selling the data of all of these infants who don't have control over it. And the health insurance policy in the future, when they hit 49, might say, oh, sorry, we're not renewing your policy this year because big data has detected a correlation oh between word. infants that have this reading when they're six months old and having a heart attack at 40 at 49. Oh, my you know, word. So, yeah. so that's just an example of a correlation that big data might find. And so when a deceased person's data still sticks around by default, they're they're out of contract. There's no legal, you know, dead people don't aren't held to contracts. And so companies can do whatever they want with that data. Now, dead people don't click on ads, dead people don't buy stuff, but they can mine all sorts of insights about living users from those deceased data. Of course, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and they can infer all sorts of things from the person's network from this data. Um, there's also various other kinds of ways where, you know, trading like uh, email lists or kind of contacts lists or data lists, you know, companies get money for selling those things. And it's not, they don't necessarily have to stipulate or they don't necessarily know these are deceased users, but they're still kind of monetizing the sale of this data. Um, and more nefariously or more worryingly, uh, dates of death on the dark web have a going rate in Bitcoin. And I'm thinking, well, why would people be wanting to access or purchase uh, names and dates of death? And I'm really concerned about this because right now families are having a really hard time handling the digital portion of an estate, including bits that have financial, like actual financial value, like cryptocurrencies and yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah. And an enterprising criminal or, you know, could exploit that period of time when nobody's minding the store, as it were, with respect to that data. And if they can hack into a useful entry point to that data, they could potentially access all sorts of things. And deep fake technology, both audio and video, is getting better all the time. So it, if they could get access to that person's information and also that person's audio, then they could really wreak havoc and, you know, get there ahead of the probate, the executor, and it, there could be some nasty surprises waiting for that family. So I feel like that's a crisis that's coming really soon if we don't get a handle on this area. So I think there's lots of ways in which deceased people's data um, are valuable, not just to the companies that house them, but also to people who might want it, bad actors who might want to exploit that data for criminal purposes. This is it. Um, I, I think going from the idea of who owns your data when you're alive then, um, when you do pass, I presume, do social media take ownership of that? I mean, would somebody like Facebook take ownership of your data? Well, again, it's like the access is nine tenths of the law kind of thing. Nobody, there's no clear, it's like, it's like they allow you to appoint people to manage it, to kind of like change certain things about the account or do whatever. But it's not like that data reverts to somebody or gets passed on to somebody. So the vast majority of the control is, is, is like, well, you might own a table and, you know, and it's, but if it's in somebody else's house, then somebody else has to let you into the house to use the table, right? So it's kind of a similar kind of thing. Like 
that data might have something to do with you. But if you can't get into the house to use it, you can't. This is true. And so I think that in a way, this whole question around ownership that we're circling around is an example of us trying to get our heads around what this new landscape looks like. And it illustrates our difficulty translating the concepts and the principles that we're used to from the pre-digital era into this context. <laughs> and I think there's a lot that needs to be stri- stripped back to first principles where we're like, okay, these pre-digital era laws and concepts don't work very much. What do we need to do to make us it fit for a digital context? But it's one of those many areas where technology's kind of raced ahead of yeah. law, regulation, yeah. and yeah. even just philosophy. And I think even applying ethics to this relatively new technology. Oh, 100%. I I hear you. I hear you. And so many people are still learning about this as we go along. And by people, I mean lawmakers and policymakers. And and I guess it is such a vast area, even for an expert to delve into, and for us too, for everyone really, there's so much we don't know about this area. Uh, Yeah. And then once you get to know it, things... You know, when the data, the new data protection regulation, which seems like such a boring thing, you know, everybody got all the emails about GDPR, GDPR, like, yeah. you know, everybody got sick to death of it. <laughs> but one of the things that GDPR didn't do, it said, we're not going to deal with deceased people's data. That's up to member states, which was yeah. not great yeah. because then all the member states made their own little decisions about what to do. And they were all different. And it's now it's just a hot mess. I can imagine. So I can imagine. It needs like a... It's probably a little bit too soon for another whole new GDPR, but it needs like some kind of addendum or writer or article or something added to it that says, oh, sorry, like we are now dealing with this because it almost needs a global convention, almost like copyright or intellectual property has a kind of global convention. This is not an area where you can afford to be too localized. It just yeah, won't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that, I don't know, I wasn't in the room. I don't know the deal. But I can understand why the authors of the GDPR kind of just, maybe they tangled with it. And they're just like, oh my gosh, I don't understand what's going on here. And then dropped it. It's still like, complicated. I'm into deep. that can down the road, down the road, down the road. But so unfortunate because, you know, yeah. it'll be a while before another great big regulation like that comes out. Uh, you know, yeah, and the yeah. stuff in the UK pretty much maps on to the GDPR stuff. But I mean, this is so new and people are so almost fetishizing of data. They're like, yes, let's collect all the data we can. Ooh, look at this candy colored rings on my watch that tell me these things. And we're also interested in collecting the data about ourselves. And it probably does have a lot of benefits, including health benefits or safety benefits or whatever. But we're not sure what is being traded Right. It's, yeah. a, it's called the trade-off fallacy. Somebody says, oh, you want free social media? It's like, wow, Facebook's free. Twitter's yeah, free. Yeah. Quote, unquote, free. Instagram is free. So and, and the people tick these T's and C's. Almost nobody reads the T's and C's. Those who do don't really understand them or they're not complete. And so we think, oh, yeah, I'm happy to make that trade. I'm happy to give up some of my privacy for getting what I get from this. But when the difference in knowledge and power is so big, you don't know what you're trading. It's like, 
societal health warning, applications of some data may be yet to mature. Like we, rice, you know, even rice, the companies yeah. themselves don't always know the future possible uses and applications of the data that they're collecting. They want to keep it around long enough to see whether they can extract something useful out of it. So this is why they're not jettisoning it. It's like being laid down like stuff in the ground. And then eventually they're like, oh, if we mine here, we can get this out of it, yeah, okay, you nice. know, and that what was just like some carbon is now matured into this diamond that's really valuable because we found this association, Yeah, you yeah. know, and that's why deceased people's data isn't just being jettisoned. So here's a question then. How long do we think is that data going to be kept for after after we die is it going to be kept forever in some form of cloud or 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 will it ever get destroyed if my hypothesis that they are reluctant to jettison pretty much anything because they think it could be valuable to them in future and yet in ways as yet undetermined then it's kind of in their interest from the big data perspective to just hang on to it you know kind of like um you know how tissue samples sometimes from a long time ago get retained and then they find out they can find out some valuable information about that, but they like comes out of some drawer in the medical lab or whatever. And then there's this insight that's derived or, or the cold case, you know, stuff in the police department and they didn't have DNA then. And oh, look, now the cold case is solved because this piece of evidence has been reanalyzed. So course, they're thinking yeah, about it yeah, probably yeah. like that. So in that case, by that logic, the the you know various organizations would be motivated to hang on to it for a good long, long time but think of it about how much of it there is i was doing a little bit of research trying to work out the environmental cost of all of these data storage centers you know which have to be cooled down because they generate heat and there's a certain amount of environmental pollution that's being caused by you know a degradation of our environment because we're trying to cool down all of this rapidly mounting data well I mean, so if everything's being stored ad infinitum by default, that's a lot of data piling up. And I would, if you know. It's crazy. But then you think, okay, let's get rid of some of it. Who makes those decisions according to what yeah, rules yeah, yeah. and what values? Who decides whose data is yes. important enough to preserve <laughs> and who we can just get rid of? Yeah. Like who decides and how? Because let's be honest, if it is going to be people in the offices of these big companies, I think humans have a fairly bad track record in choosing the correct ethical path ahead, you know? Totally. It's crazy. It's crazy. But look, I'll tell you what, one thing I did want to put to you, and it is the idea of digital citizenship, to be conscious of... Of, of, of how you're living your digital life. Because we all know, of course, with Instagram and Facebook, you're putting your best self out there. Totally. And that's fine. You put your best pictures, you look great, and you're living, you're living your best life. But we're forgetting the other data. Your Google search history, which is your deepest, oh, yeah. <laughs> most inner thoughts that sometimes your, your family and best friends don't even know. Because you will share with Google what you're thinking. You know, if you want to know something, you know, you'll search for it. And and that search is recorded and that might be up for grabs. So your search history could potentially be up for grabs when you're gone. Oh, 
very easily if people can access your laptop. You know, most people have a password on their laptop now. You know, the passwords that we put on both our devices and our accounts, of course, are really important because hack- hackers are really entrepreneurial. You know, we have so much important data on there. So those safeguards that we take in life are a nightmare for people after death. But let's say, yeah, you're right. You know, they were able to access your search history. I mean, one of the examples I talk about in the book, and it's an old example, but it still holds true today, is that when there was a data leak in 2006, I think it was, with America Online, um, there were something like 600,000 anonymized search strings. So just all the stuff you plug in when you're looking for stuff in a search engine. And they were, so it's just a list of things from 600,000 users. But then even though they were anonymized, the New York Times was able to fairly easily within a couple days identify some specific individuals from the search history. And then these two filmmakers made this incredible set of mini movies called I Love Alaska, where they took one particular searcher who had a very unique searching history. And her search history unfolds like a Russian novel and it just you're on the edge of your chair and you can see exactly what's going on and you're scared and you're apprehensive and all these kinds of things, but you can really see it. You can see her struggles. You can see her, her sadness. You can see her longing. You can see her confusion. You can see her desires. You can see her frustrations. It's all there. And that was not some performative thing that she was putting on social media. That was the stuff you just do that you're not, thinking about of course, you know the, yeah, and you don't yeah. think about that as autobiographical but it's that kind of stuff and importantly you know bereaved people aren't just affected in a predictable way by technology or by any set of you know anything that you leave behind or any set of digital remains it's not like sometimes people say oh does that have a good or bad impact or how is tech changing the way we grieve and that's not really how it works. Every bereaved person has a lot of agency. They kind of create a narrative of the deceased person, of themselves as bereaved people, of the relationship. And it's a narrative that changes over time and they weave all sorts of stuff, online stuff, offline stuff into yeah, their yeah. narrative. Yeah, of course. And so it's not like somebody's going to, you know, like say, oh, it's harmful for people to access or it's not hard. It, it all depends. But the point is, is that since they're such active narrators, somebody can come across a search history mm-hmm. and it's an ambiguous thing and they'll create a story out of that th- through their own kind of lens. And they, in that story, there might be a lot of questions or there might be pain or there might be hurt. Of course. Of course. And maybe they can resolve that within themselves and story that in a way that allows them to go forward but maybe there's a lot of stuff that gets awakened that they really wish the deceased person were there to have a conversation with about, or at least clarify or heal or something. Mm-hmm. And they're not there and, and they have to do, do that for themselves. When that guy I talked about, Albert Gaderi, the privacy lawyer from California, one of the first um, cases he litigated in this area was a family who really, really wanted to get into their university age son's stuff. And it was complicated, and it turned out there was a way to help them. He got permission from everybody the son communicated with in order to give access. And he said it turned out really badly that the son wasn't who the parents thought he was. A lot of family secrets got exposed, not so much about stuff that had happened, but about how people felt about one another. Like the sister didn't like the mother and had some really negative feelings about the mother and the mother saw that. And then it caused this all this 
further pain within the family because what had been said when somebody was feeling some kind of way, and it might have been that, you know, somebody was feeling some kind of way on a particular day, yeah, said a thing, but then the when the person reads it, it becomes something else. And we don't know. We don't know whether it's blessing or a curse that we're going to find when we access that stuff. Yeah, And, and I do believe um, that when you're in grief, all that stuff is magnified as well. Mm-hmm. So it seems so much worse. Mm-hmm. You know, a throwaway comment that you might have mailed to somebody becomes this explosive thing, you know? Yeah. And that's why sometimes, yeah, it's not just the, the what the person said or what the person posted. Sometimes you look at what you yourself communicated. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you might go back through, I don't know, a WhatsApp exchange or SMS exchange or messenger exchange. And you might think, oh, my God, like I was, I did this and there could be shame or guilt that you're feeling. It might affect how you feel about yourself. And so that, and again, that gets woven into the narrative and not in a way that is fixed or that can't be over time restoried in a way that feels comfortable, but it's a shaking up. Yeah. 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 And you mentioned there, you know, when you see old emails, it happened to me recently, now very trivial. It was nothing dramatic, but I came across an email from literally 15 years ago and the vocabulary I used, the wording, I was like, God, I remember the Connor who wrote that email. Mm. And it's strange for me myself to see that, but I thought, God, if somebody else saw that. Um, yeah, it's, it's mad when it happens. But listen, we will start to wrap this up. And, you know, I, I don't want to end on, on some big profound question, but ultimately, you know, what can we do in terms of our digital citizenship and how we live our lives online and preparing for the day when we're not here anymore to, to maintain it? What, what can we do? Right. Well, there's a number of different things and I can signpost you guys to, I've got a YouTube channel and I did a video recently for Dying Matters Week here in the UK, which is a week in May where we talk about having these kinds of conversations. And I outlined some of these um, things, but I mean, one of the things that we can do is the thing that you and I are doing today, which is to have conversations about death and the digital, just to acknowledge and realize that it's a thing to begin with, because I think a lot of us are doing a lot of assuming and not a lot of assessing. And and I think that underscoring the really profound differences between digital stuff and physical stuff and the kind of laws that those obey right now makes us realize that we we can't depend on things being available to people or even to us in our older age, the way that we think that we're going to they're going to be. We need to puncture this mythology that online is forever because online might very well mean forever, sort of, but not to us, to the people who have control of the data. And that's actually not us. So we have ceded control of our data when we sign up to most of those platforms a long time ago. And the chickens kind of come home to roost uh, at certain points when you realize the extent of control that you've surrendered. So part of it, it's not about being a Luddite or like going back to writing stuff on papyrus scrolls or something, although those papyrus scrolls would probably be around longer than some of the stuff we commit to binary code. But, <laughs> um, but it is about thinking 
okay, I need to assume that if something is sitting behind a password, any password on a device or account, I need to assume non-access. I need to assume non-access just to my loved ones if something happened, but I need to assume non-access for myself in later life. Maybe you want to look back in your dotage and right now you can access that email from 13 years ago, but something might shift about that. Something might change about that. And so I think it's really important to be a bit curatorial and to translate stuff into a format that you can control and that you can you know pass on so some of the key financial information lists of places where you have accounts not passwords i wouldn't keep a list of passwords that's just too you you draw people into a legal activity by that and and also it's just it's not good security wise yeah, but yeah, you know yeah, yeah. keeping a maintaining an offline list of where you have accounts so at least people have a place to start um, okay, yeah. every once in a while which i think is a really nice exercise and a reflective exercise confronting the 7,000 or 8,000 photos you've taken and thinking oh like let me just cherry pick some of these and let me be deliberate and let me sit down with my family and say, oh, let's put this together. And that's really nice because it allows you to cut through some of the digital overwhelm and curate something that's more manageable that you can control and that nobody has to give you permission to access. Um, I think that making a digital era will, even in jurisdictions where that doesn't hold weight yet, it does not hurt to express your wishes. It does not hurt to let people know, um, you know, what's important to you uh, about your digital life. For example, if you've kept a blog your whole life, if you're a writer, for example, and or a photographer, and you want that people to use money from your estate to keep up payments on that blog, because how are payments on that blog going to get made? Oh, you know, yeah. uh, so so, yeah. so you, it's kind of like making plans, assuming non-access and assuming non-cooperation from platforms with respect to nice, right. handing things over. Um, think about what would disadvantage or hurt me if this were not available or anybody else if this were not available. Yeah. I think the other principle to live your digital, digital citizen's life according to is that Online, it's never about just your data. It, 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 your data is fundamentally connected to other people. I do this exercise for a digital stranger exercise, uh, eulogy rather, eulogy for a digital stranger exercise in workshops, whereby a volunteer offers a way into their digital presence, like gives the face their name or something in their LinkedIn profile. And then people okay, break into good. groups and they only have a quarter of an hour, 20 minutes to write the most as though they knew the person, really personal tribute to their life they possibly can. So people stand up and then offer these tributes and the volunteer feeds back about how accurate it was. And it's often scarily accurate. It's just, and it it really does get to the essence of what the person would want to be remembered for, although Mm -hmm. there might be a difference Mm -hmm. in emphasis. But then they'll say, oh, but I didn't remember putting that out about myself. And oftentimes it's because they didn't. Somebody else tagged them. Somebody else wrote about them. Somebody else, you know. So whether it's – so so that's really important too, that if you give somebody access like via passwords or anything else to your stuff, then they see everything and everybody. Absolutely. Including people who didn't anticipate that and and in ways that you might not have wanted and they might not want. So it's not – ever just about you, you know, and sometimes when you look at things from the other person's perspective, um, that can help you think a little bit more clearly about it. But when you go and vote for people, 
this sounds like such a weird niche thing to be assessing candidates for office according to. But, you know, some people are more clued up about these really important issues about privacy in the digital age and about our data than others. And so you need to be, it's a good thing to be pushing for that, um, you know, as items on people's agenda and kind of voting, you know, according to people who are going to really represent, you know, your your interest in that way and people who seem to be knowledgeable about these impor- important things. I mean, I was really all about the U.S. candidate. I'm allowed to vote in the United States elections. And early on in the Democratic race, there was a guy called Andrew Yang, who was the only person talking about how artificial intelligence was going to be affecting, okay, you know, the economy and our lives in ways that we really need to be paying attention to. And it was one yeah, of his arguments yeah. for why we need to move towards universal basic income because of how AI and was going to be changing the landscape. And, you know, there may have been other things in his policies that I was less about, but on that, he was spot on. And I'm so glad that there was a candidate talking about that because nobody had before. Because I, I don't believe it's a conversation that's happening in Ireland, really. I know in preparation yeah. for this, I tried to search it out uh, online. So I tried to see if radio stations mm-hmm. or TV shows had discussed the, the topic uh, before. You mentioned politicians and politics. And mm-hmm. I would welcome listeners to correct me on this. Please do. But I would struggle, I think, to find a politician in Ireland who was raising this mm-hmm. and and, yeah. and, uh, and and talking about it. Um, look, I knew coming into this that we'd never get into every corner of this. It is a vast topic. Yeah. But at least for listeners of the podcast, um, I can at least, if I can at least just plant the seed and get the conversation, well, facilitate bringing your conversation over to this side of, of the Irish Sea and just to get people to, to at least think about it. Um, listeners have lots of avenues to explore if they want to hear more about this. Um, you can just type Elaine Casket into your podcast search engine. Lots of brilliant set podcasts that Elaine has done. Elaine, you've spoken about this. And Elaine your amazing book, which I didn't think was going to arrive before we went to record this, but it did. So at least I've gotten at least a start into it. All the ghosts in the machine. It is a fantastic book. It's mind-blowing. And um, thank you for writing it, Elaine. It's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it, it, is pretty, it is pretty crazy. And I have a podcast of my own that talks about these issues too called Still Spoken, which is like, you know, you, you know you're know you never dead while your name, or still sp- name is still spoken kind of thing. And so some of these things that I've talked about and some of the names that I've mentioned, I go into depth, in-depth conversations with some of the folks whose names I've highlighted to, talking to you today, uh, because thank God there's a lot of people now academics and you know practitioners doing work in this area from all sorts of different disciplines but it's one of those things where it's kind of slow to trickle out to the general mm, population mm. which it really really needs to do like it needs to be talked about not just at the corporate level not just the law level but like everybody needs to understand more about this absolutely um absolutely. so your podcast uh, is really useful you know in getting th- the word out so i'm really appreciative oh. of that you took an interest in the topic. I'm glad you are. Oh, well, look, I'm appreciative that you've shared your time and your wisdom with me to, to uh, talk about this. Um, All the Ghosts in the Machine, um, it is on Amazon, but you were telling me about um, bookshop.org 
Uh, it sounds like yeah. a cool website. Bookshop.org. Yeah, it's a cool concept. It's in the UK. Uh, so it's uk.bookshop.org. Um, um, and it basically supports your independent uh, booksellers. Um, so it's an alternative to Amazon. So if you want to move away from the big tech, you know, dominance of <laughs> Amazon uh, and get, do something smaller scale. And it's actually also a really nice like browsing experience on, you know, and it's kind of like tries to approximate how you kind of like wander through a physical book which is really pretty uh you know kind of great big pictures of the covers and stuff so look check out bookshop.org um uh, or anywhere anywhere you can uh, uh, get your books i suppose but also um i read the book on audible so if oh, you like the sound of my voice on this podcast you can hear me read the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> if you're an audible listener while you're at the gym or whatever it is so. you've sold it to me you've sold it to me um well look i just encourage listeners to check out all the ghosts in the machine whether it is through audible uh, or a hard copy through bookshop.org um you mentioned still spoken at uh, your podcast as well i did get to hear a couple of episodes of that and it is really really fab i would highly recommend it uh, that's a available across all podcast platforms as well and again i'd invite listeners uh, to check that out so i'll put all of the links into the episode description as well so you'll be able to just click on them but look elaine thank you i've gotten so much out of this i'm sure listeners did too um and in fact i'm looking forward to hearing uh, listeners thoughts as well as always i can be contacted through the celebration sessions on instagram (laughs) And the irony is not lost to me. Um, but look, Elaine, I mean, it's such an important conversation to have. So I do hope uh, listeners were able to take from it. And I know I did. So thank you very much. Oh, you're really welcome. It's always nice to have a really in-depth conversation about this. And I appreciate all your thoughtful questions and observations. Aww. It's been great to talk to you. Oh, likewise. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, So as I said, I'll put all the links to Elaine's book, uh, the podcast and the website into the episode description. Um, And and, and look, if you found this conversation interesting, please do share it online. And I guess my takeaway from this episode is that I'm going to be thinking now when I'm gone and people look at my social media, what will be gleaned from that about me and how close to the truth will it actually be and i think going forward i might try at least to think before i post what part will this play in me being remembered oh also print your photos into photo books digital is good but tangible is better on that note that is it for me till the next time take care stay safe this has been the celebration sessions podcast (laughs) 